0: About our study of Joshua in the uh, the Bible classes and in the, the sermon time on Sunday mornings, and uh, it was uh, it was a very good email with some very good questions. Basically, the the email uh, was asking for more information about the the importance of the land and its significance to the Jewish people, and especially as a, uh, as we we begin to sing about the land in metaphorical ways uh, as as Christians. And so tonight. Uh, even though we're, we're used to having uh, uh, sermons on Sunday night, tonight is going to be a little bit more like a class. There's an outline that, uh, that Kimball and, and uh, I forgot who else, uh, I, uh, Lloyd Dunn, uh, were passing out. If you don't have one, raise your hand. They will make sure that you get one. But we have a lot of, a lot of Scripture to cover tonight. Uh, we're basically going to survey the Pentateuch and, and try to deepen and broaden our understanding of the significance and the importance of the land as we study the book of Joshua. And let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we're thankful for the grace to sing praises to You. We're thankful for the grace to study Your Word. We're thankful for the grace of fellowship and coming together at the end of a day to encourage one another and to remind each other of the precious nature of our faith, of our relationship with you and our relationship with each other. And in this study, Father, we ask that that you help us to understand these words and to place them not only in our mind and in our heart so that uh, as a people who are redeemed, we're not just reformed in our thinking and behavior, but completely transformed. What what a wonderful gift that is to us through your Spirit. We are thankful for these that have come to be a part of our assembly tonight. And we pray that you will guard them with your angels as they travel back to Edmund. And we're thankful for all of the things that they do to expand the borders of your kingdom in this world that they are light in places where there is great darkness. And so again, Father, as we, we return to Your Word tonight, we, we pray that You will give us eyes that see and ears that hear. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The, the Bible uh, can be described in a lot of different ways. Uh, for me, it is, uh, it is uh, a book that tells the story of redemption. It is the the redemption that begins with God's promises to Abraham, which begins to be anticipated immediately after the fall of mankind in Genesis chapter 3. It's anticipated in what uh, scholars or theologians call the proto-evangelium, the first announcement of the gospel. And in that statement, you find in Genesis 3.15, the humanity that is the seed of the woman will eventually be, be victorious over the evil that has injected itself into history, which is the seed of the serpent. And the world that is cursed because of this fall is going to be blessed, and all of this is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus' defeat of Satan. We speed forward a couple of chapters, and we find that the flood also presents both the judgment of man's wickedness with the flood, but also the salvation of Noah and his family. That flood kind of becomes God's redeeming grace in Genesis 6, 7, and 8. That flood is the destruction as well as the renewal of a cursed earth. Now by the time we get to Genesis chapter 12 and we have the story of Abraham breaking out into history, it's not surprising that the covenant promises that God makes to Abraham at the beginning of chapter 12 would also include the land and would include the land every time God reminded Abraham or all of his descendants, the the ancestors, the patriarchs of those promises and of that covenant. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and then in verse 7 we read, The Lord uh, had said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, And whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Then verse 7, The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. And then we go to Genesis chapter 15, verse 7, He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this, what? Land to take possession of it. You go down to about verse 18 and you read, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said to your descendants, I give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, the Jebusites, basically all of the ites. Now out of the 46 references to the promises that are made to Abraham from Genesis to Judges, there are only 7 times where the land is not mentioned. In fact, 29 out of the 46 times that the land... That the, uh, that the promises are mentioned. It's, it's a reference to the land and the land alone. That's why the land becomes important in the collective uh, psychological makeup of the people of Israel, which we will see in this very quick survey. What we're going to do is look at Genesis through Joshua, the b- first chapter of Joshua, and kind of begin to develop a theology of the land and then to make a couple of points at the end about it. We begin with Genesis. The patriarchs, as you remember from your reading of Genesis, wander in the land, but they have no secure footholds in it. About the only place that you find them actually securing a piece of land is in Genesis chapter 23, when Abraham purchases a burial site. But in chapter 15, which is one of the most important chapters, not just in Genesis but in the entire Bible, where this covenant is made with Abraham, that that extends through redemptive history. You have the Lord saying to him about that land, Know for certain, verse 13, that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterward they will come out with great possessions. He's talking about what nation? Egypt. That's right. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation your descendants will come back here. They'll come back where? To the land. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And this comes to pass as we get to the end of Genesis. the, The family of Joseph is settling down in Egypt. And even though they're outside of Palestine, they are in the land of Egypt, no one has lost sight of the land. For the way Genesis ends is with Joseph's dying words recalling the promise of God and trusting its fulfillment. Which now brings us to Exodus. Exodus launches with God remembering His words to Abraham. Chapter 2, verse 24. God heard their groaning and He remembered His what? His covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob, the patriarchs, the ancestors. And the first 19 chapters of Exodus deal with Israel being freed, Israel being mobilized, Israel being enriched with great possessions as they leave uh, Egypt and, and go to the land of promise. They're at Mount Sinai for, a couple of, uh, for about 9 to 12 months where Israel is organized. And it's while they're there at Mount Sinai that God reveals Himself and begins to reveal His will for them through the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. And it's there that they are bound to keep the covenant. Now, we would think that heading into the Promised Land was just a, a, a step away. But the answer to that is no, not yet. What we have to deal with in Exodus is the furnishing of the temple, not once, but twice. And there's a very important reason. I mean, we have to ask the question, why do we have to deal with all of these these details about the tabernacle and the tent of meeting and all of these kinds of things? The lesson, when we read carefully, is as clear as the prayer of Moses. In Exodus 33, Moses said to him, if your presence, he's, he's speaking to God, if your presence does not go with us, Do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and and with your people unless you, you God, Yahweh, go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Here's the reason. The presence of the Lord in the midst of His people was more important than the gift of the land. Let me say that again. give you time to write it down. The presence of the Lord in the midst of His people was more important than the gift of the land. By the time you get the people out of Egypt, they're out Mount Sinai. The covenant is being renewed. They're being reminded that, that God is sovereign. They've had all of those experiences out there in the desert on the way to Mount Sinai, that God is going to do it. The, the, the issue, the temptation, the problem, is that the promise, the promise, the promise, the promise, that the promise will become more important than the promise giver. And so that's why you have a couple of of, of different surveys through the the, the tabernacle and the tent of meeting and the importance of it. It was not to lose sight of the fact that primarily this is about a relationship, again, between God and His, His creatures. It's about God and Israel modeling for the rest of the world what it's supposed to be like. But there is that temptation that the land will usurp the place of God. And Moses sees that, and in this prayer, he's basically saying, "Without you, God, we might as well stay stay where we are. We might as well not leave. We might because it's you, Father. It's not the land. It's you that's going to make us different. You are the one that makes us unique. You're the one. You're choosing. Your presence is what makes us special." And so Exodus ends with the glory of the presence of God settling on the tent of the meeting, and going with the Israelites in all of their travels, but. Exodus ends and the people are not yet in the land, which brings us to Leviticus. The narrative, the storytelling, really for all intents and purposes about the travels to the, to the promised land is suspended a bit as detailed laws are given as to how the people are to live in relationship with God. The point being, that's the reason that there's a relationship in the first place, is to maintain it. and and to cherish that relationship and understand the dynamics of it, not just in terms of what it means for the health and the the wealth and the prosperity and the well-being of Israel, but to be a light to the entire world. But at the end of Leviticus, we do have this holiness code, as the scholars call it. It's it's about the the laws. uh, The land comes back into focus, but there's this new understanding in this holiness code about the land. It's to help the people to understand the place and the priority of the land in terms of its relationship to them and God. The land in this holiness code is personified. Uh, that is, it, it's kind of given a personality. It's kind of given some attributes of a person. It, it, it is personified as an agent of God's blessings and cursings. That it's here in Leviticus that God says that the people, He's called them in Genesis chapter 15, of. The, the 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 wickedness of the Amorites has not filled up its measure yet. The cup is not, it has not been filled. But he talks about it even more in Leviticus that the land will vomit out its inhabitants because of their wickedness. But it's not just those inhabitants that have been there for a long time, that judgment is coming, that the land is going to vomit out. It's it, the same as we saw last week in our studies that there is no double standard here the standard that was applied to the Amorites and the Girgisites and all of those different ites, the same holds true for Israel if they forsake God. And so in Leviticus 18, Moses teaches them, do not defile yourselves in any of these ways because this is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you became defiled. Even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you but you must keep my decrees and my laws. The native-born and the foreigners residing among you must not do any of these detestable things, for all these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you, and the land became defiled. And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. And in case you know, they do, like I do sometimes with emails, and I read them too fast and don't get the details... Two chapters later in Leviticus 20, the same words. God says through Moses, Keep all of my decrees and laws and follow them so that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. You must not live according to the customs of the nations I am going to drive out before you because they did all of these things I I abhorred. But I said to you, you will possess their land I will give it to you as an inheritance, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has set you apart from the nations. And by the time you get to Leviticus 26, it looks like there is a prediction of such an expulsion of Israel from the land because of their own wickedness. But then the narrative picks up again in numbers. The story begins to be told again of the people traveling uh, towards the uh, the promised land. The story of the land reaches its first climax with the spies going off to the land of Kadesh Barnea to the south of the Promised Land, they're in Numbers 13 and Numbers 14. And you know the story. They've with the negative report. They say, yes, the land is flowing with milk and honey. The land is fantastic. It, it is a wonderful place. Everything that God said about it is true. But guess what? There are giants in the land. And we look like gnats to them. And even in our own eyes, we were gnats in our own eyes to them. And the people believe that report. And the problem is is that the, the, the land becomes kind of this 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 nebulous fixture in their minds. It, you know, maybe we shouldn't go into this land, this promised land. Maybe we should go back to Egypt. And all of these things that God in relationship with them had, had had proven his faithfulness and his power and his compassion and his love and all of these things in defeating their enemies on the way and providing food where there were no no places to buy food and water where there were no places to get drinking water and, and leading them through a place that they had never been before even though you know, they didn't have GPS, they didn't have Google Maps. All they had was God, His cloud and His, and His, uh, and His fire at night to lead them. But the people draw back. They're not getting it. They, they lose their nerve. There's rebellion against God. There's murmuring against Him. And that first attempt to ev- invade the land is aborted. And, and Numbers is the, the, the dreary years of a whole generation dying in the wilderness. And by the time you get to the end of the book, the, the, the reader begins to ask, will they ever get there? But in Numbers 23 and 24, you have the oracles of Balaam. He is going to curse, but he ends up, he ends up blessing the nation of Israel. God is going to override the enemies. Remember that but then you have the business of the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half tribe of Manasseh who get up to the place, at the, uh, the, the east side of the river, and they say, you know what? I don't think we're going to go in. But the Numbers ends with that crisis that seems to be a repeat at the end of the forty years of that Kadesh Barnea fiasco. It, it ends diplomatically; everybody is happy, and Numbers ends optimistically with the map of Canaan redrawn to accommodate. The, the victorious Israelites in Numbers chapter thirty-four, which brings us to Deuteronomy. You know, in anything proper and anything godly, you can't you can't begin it unless you have a couple of sermons, and that's what the book, the last book of the Pentateuch, really is. It's three sermons about what not to do once you get into the land, and what not to do, especially as it pertains to your relationship with God. It begins and it ends in Moab. And and Moses retells the story. In the first 11 chapters of Deuteronomy, Moses retells the story of everything that had happened in their history. And he exhorts the people to be faithful to God. It's not just the land. More importantly, it is you with God and God with you in this land that He's giving you. Be faithful. Don't be like your forefathers. Don't be like those that are buried out into the desert. And then Deuteronomy ch- uh, chapter 12, going to chapter 26, there's a bunch of old and new laws pertaining about how do you live in this land. You're going into a land. And you're going to see more advanced cultures and cities than you've ever seen before. Don't be, don't be seduced by that. Be, be overwhelmed by the great awesomeness of God. But when you go into that land and you see that, that Canaanite pantheon of God don't don't allow yourself to be caught up with that understand that there is a way that you live that reflects the relationship that you have with God and then beginning in Deuteronomy 28 and going for a couple of chapters uh, to about chapter 30 Moses reminds the people that the land will either bless them or curse them and vomit them out depending on their faithfulness and their relationship with God and Deuteronomy ends as it begins uh, ends as it began with the promise to Abraham In Deuteronomy 34, Then the Lord said to him, This is the land I promised on oath to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob when I said, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over into it. And then there's Joshua. And it opens with very optimistic words. Chapter 1. Moses, and God is speaking to Joshua. He says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. And so you can see that as, as Israel begins to think of itself as the nation of God, as, as this, this nation of priests, this holy nation chosen by God, the land becomes this significant piece of it. But there are two lessons that they were to draw out of their experience with it. The first is this. The land was a declaration of Israel's dependency on God. Israel had land because, quite simply, God gave it to them. That's the only reason. I don't really fully understand why he chose this particular piece of land. But this is where the the story of redemption is going to be staged and played out to the point that it affects you and me even to this day. But Israel has this land quite simply because God gave it to them. The land was a gift. And the Pentateuch, over and over and over again, the Pentateuch, the first five books of, of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, also known as Torah, emphasizes that the patriarchs were sojourners, that they were pilgrims that they were, they, were, they were travelers who did not possess the land on their own. And this theme is pressed upon Israel's mind prior to entering the land again and again and again. And it's always not a flattering story. What they were being told is to be dependent on God's love. This, this, this land is a gift. It is, it is dependent on God's love and His faithfulness to you. Therefore, there are no bounds or, or, or no grounds for boasting. He says, these, these people are not going to be dispossessed from the land because you're morally better than they are. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, you are chosen and I'm giving you this land not because you are numerically great. I'm not blessing you with these victories because you're bigger and better than anybody else. And then in Deuteronomy 8, the very next chapter, it's not because you're the wealthiest or the prettiest of nations. And then in chapter 9, it's not even because you're the most moral of all the nations. God could not be construed into some kind of a figurehead for Israel's own purposes. That Israel, in other words, that Israel is going to do what it wants to do in the land, and God is going to be the agent. He's going to be the mechanism. He's going to be the weapon of mass destruction that's going to get them there. But it's really going to be what they want to do. God is just emphasizing over and over and over. No. No. You are going to be the agent of judgment on a people that have had the opportunity to repent. But that same kind of judgment will come on you because you are not the most moral or the wealthiest or the most numerical. This is a gift. And because it's a gift coming from a loving God, it is, He is worthy of, of, of obedience. Fact number two. The land was a declaration of the dependability of God. Every time they had a harvest, they were reminded of this fact, that God was faithful to His promises. In Psalm 136, years after the people found themselves in the land, this psalmist begins to write as he's telling the story of the people leaving Egypt and going into the promised land. Towards the end, verse 21, he says, "And, "...and the Lord gave their land as an inheritance. His love endures forever. An inheritance to His servant Israel. His love endures forever." He remembered us in our low estate. His love endures forever. And freed us from our enemies. His love endures forever. He gives food to every creature. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven. You said. His love. Throughout the entire history of the Pentateuch, the emphasis is God sticking with the plan, sticking with Israel, sticking to His Word, even though Israel has given Him every reason to destroy them and to kick them to the curb. And it is this dependability, it's this faithfulness, it's this devotion to Israel that made Him worthy of obedience. Now, let's bring it to today as we close. The land anticipated in this story of redemption a greater kingdom. The land anticipated a greater kingdom. And here it is in summary, as the Bible tells it. That man is outside the kingdom of God without any means of getting into the kingdom because we fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. We've all sinned. And there is no one who is righteous. There's not even one. There is no one who understands. No one who seeks God. Romans chapter 3 verses 10 and 11. And yet, and yet, even though there's no way that we can get in, God so loves the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have what? Everlasting life, John three sixteen. Life in the kingdom of God is possible not because we're strong, and not because we're beautiful, and not because we're rich, not because we're moral, not because we deserve it, not because we earn it. It is by grace that we have been saved through faith, and it is not from yourselves, it's a gift from God, not by works, and that no one can boast. Ephesians 2, verse 8. Therefore, live a life worthy of the gospel, of the calling you have received in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 4. Ephesians 5, verse 1. Be imitators of God. And honor God with your body, for you were bought with a price. You are not your own. And knowing that He will never leave you, that He will never forsake you, Hebrews 13 verse 5, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess for He who promised is faithful. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 23. What Israel failed to grasp and to understand is the lesson that we cannot afford to to not grasp and to understand and to embrace and live by and be transformed by every day of our life. What we have in a fellowship, in a family, in in a church, in in the greater kingdom of God, in, 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 in the will of God, the stream of the will of God, is not something that we have earned. It's not something we've been able to buy. It's not something we've been able to wrench from God's grip. It's given to us as a gift. And God is faithful. And God is unbelievably true to His promises. That's why He puts His Holy Spirit in you. It's that deposit guaranteeing that all of those promises that He has made to you as a, a, a child, as a son, as a daughter, as, a, as an heir of every promise, of every inheritance that's in Christ Jesus, that, that Holy Spirit of His is inside of you as, 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 as a guarantee, as a deposit. It's like earnest money. That if anything, that God has given you through love and compassion and mercy Because of your faith and what Jesus has accomplished. If any of that does not come true, then like earnest money, when you renege on a a purchase of a home, you lose that earnest money. God loses His Holy Spirit. And if God loses His Holy Spirit, He ceases to be God. Do you see the greatness of God? Of which the interaction of Israel and the land is a a true story, a, a, a narrative of what it is that God is trying to do for us in Christ. That's the importance of the land. Now there's other questions in that email that we'll address in the coming weeks. But Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now. And if there are ways that our church can minister to you tonight through prayer or through helping you to come in contact with this God who loves you and wants to give you His kingdom, to give you an inheritance and to make you an heir, then come down and talk to our shepherds who can show you how that can be done by standing and coming down to the front as we stand and sing.